All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So recent polling has come out and lo and behold, the number one issue that Americans are concerned about is inflation and the economy. That's right. Despite everything else happening, despite all everything in the news, everything that politicians are pushing, that the media is pushing, that academia is pushing, it is no surprise that inflation and the economy is still the number one issue on a lot of people's minds. And what we're going to talk about today is going to be interesting because we've got some quotes coming from Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, and it is very informative with respect to how our betters in Washington, D.C. feel about us, feel about the concept of inflation. But more than that, we're going to talk about how do we actually respond to this and how do we actually solve problems surrounding inflation. All that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Everyone here on the show, Nick, myself, Tina, and Christian, want to thank you for joining us today for this episode of Making the Argument. Christian and I have noticed uh, in the analytics that we've seen an increase in Spotify listeners. So we want to welcome you all and thank you for listening. And don't if, we would love it if you could leave us a review as well. So. I want to just clarify that myself, Tina, and Hamilton all thank you for listening. Whether or not Christian thinks you is probably up for debate. Questionable. He's, he's, okay. he's kind of the mean one of the group. I want to start this off real quick, and maybe we can talk about this in the speakeasy. I took, you know those personality tests? Yeah. Um, I, you know, the 16 personalities? Take a guess which one I was. I took it last night. Um, You're going to be e blown away. ENTJ. No. No. INTJ. He is an INFP. INFJ. Oh, I knew I was close. I knew judgmental wow. would be in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was apparently that's like the rarest one out of all of them. We could talk about that later. But all like, right. It, yeah. Well, let's so. go around and introduce now that you know we, we've already introduced I'm just Christian. surprised the F is in there. He is an Ian something J. Something judgmental, which we all predicted. <laughs> Once again, I am Nick Freitas, uh, your host, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a good guy with us back. My beautiful Back wife, again. Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everybody. And Christian, who you now know all about his personality tests. In fact, one of these days, I think we should have an episode just talking about the personality tests of everyone in this room oh. and uh, who who the good version of us is and who the bad version of us is. That would be, be a fun. fascinating conversation. Right. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you for being here. As always, it's a pleasure. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump right into this. So as... Everyone living, I think, on planet Earth at this point recognizes inflation has become a problem and it's affecting everything that we buy, gas prices, grocery prices, whatever it is, you name it, inflation has had a negative effect. And there's a lot of people giving you different reasons for this. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. But I want to specifically go to some comments that Janet Yellen, former chairman of the Federal Reserve and current Treasury Secretary, has made. So she was saying back in 2021, this is early 2021, 
that the risk of inflation, now keep in mind, this is at a time where over $4 trillion had been printed. By that point, it was getting, when was this made again? This is in early 2021. Early 2021. Yeah, you're pretty close. You might, be off, you might be off by a few hundred billion, but <laughs> yes. It was in the neighborhood of several trillion by that point. All right, so let's say roughly $4 trillion in case we get fact-checked. Actually, it was $3.99 trillion. $4 trillion was being printed at this point. And Yellen looked at this and said, you know what? Risk of inflation, small. Small, and it'll be totally manageable. Completely. All right, now we go over to October of 2021. So this is later in the year, 2021. And all of a sudden, um, you know, things are things are getting a little shakier. And Yellen, Yellen gets right in there. And, and we have this article from Bloomberg where it says, Yellen sticks with the transitory view of U.S. inflation. All right, so early 2021, not a big deal. Small, manageable. October of 2021, eh, okay, yeah, this is it's still it's transitory though. Don't worry about it. And then we get into um, you know early, early 2021. There was actually another article where she had said that okay, we we can't say it's transitory anymore. We can't say it's transitory. And now here we are, finally June of 2022, and Yellen comes out and says, not only was I wrong on inflation. But it's going to get worse. Now, why do we why do we bring this up? Well, in the scope of a year, someone that you might consider to be oh I don't know a foremost government expert on inflation, and, and why do I say this? Well, it turns out that the the duty and responsibility of the United States Federal Reserve it's it's kind of like two things, right? It's keep the currency stable, right, and prevent inflation. I mean, manage inflation. You know, manage inflation. You know, another um, job that, yeah. that and, uh, apparently— the, And prevent the, runs on banks, right? Well, that no, was, no, no. So, so, like, one of the jobs that the Federal Reserve supposedly has is actually full employment. Oh, my gosh. That's that, that's one of the stated jobs yeah. of the Federal Reserve. But, so, yeah, to your point, yeah, those were the—you know, those, those are the priorities, right? Keep keep prices stable and, you know, yeah. prevent massive inflation. So we, we have someone, we have someone that is, again, a— very well-respected, highly trained economist, sure. chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, and now Secretary of the Treasury, which, for those of you who know, Treasury is the one that you know is responsible for the whole printing portion of this. And and she, and within one year, inflation's not a problem. Well, inflation looks like a problem, but it's transitory. To it, yeah, inflation's a problem too. Yeah, and it's going to get worse. You left out the Putin part. Oh yeah, and it's all Putin's fault. Well, they, okay, this is the part that was was fascinating, right? Because there's another article. I don't think we have it right here, but Christian, you brought this up because when when Janet Yellen first came out and said, "Hey, I was wrong on inflation," I'm like, "Well, yeah, no kidding," and and you, I mean, you said it. Well, look, to her credit, at least she came out there and and said, "Hey, I was wrong." I mean, what, how often do you hear a politician say that? Never. And, no, <laughs> almost never. But. And and here's the deal. I'd be I'd be happy to give her more credit if she didn't immediately go into oh, and the reason why we have inflation is because like COVID and Ukraine and and supply chain issues. Or could could it be the printing of five trillion dollars in the space of three years? Like could could that have had a little to Less do with than it? Three Janet? years, two years, twenty four yeah. months. Uh, I do think it's really interesting that she wants to bring up oh well COVID. And, and that's why, and bringing these things up. But the thing is, is that when 
when the Biden administration talks about, oh, well, the economy has grown more this year than, you know, whatever they say. I'm not tracking the numbers perfectly, but they're just going on and on about the the growth of the economy. And yet when we say, well, it's really easy to show massive growth from doing nothing at all and locking down your entire government. Of course there's growth, right? But they they want to discount what we're saying when we say, well, because of COVID. But now they're going to go ahead and cite COVID for the inflation. Yeah. Well, you, you know what's so funny, though, with the claim from the Biden administration that like uh, – I, I remember that this was like a Facebook post um, that that he made and a tweet that he made like just a few days ago. Yeah, I saw Where that. he was like, you know, we're on track to grow faster than China for the first time in, I don't know, like 20 years or something like that. It, it was the, the, the amount of tone deafness oh, behind yeah. that. So like for those at home keeping score, GDP actually shrank last quarter. Yeah. So I, I mean- this isn't even one of those like baseline budgeting things in Washington where like, I mean, most people kind of know this when like, you know, they say we created a bunch of jobs. Yeah. You locked down the whole economy and you yeah. fired a bunch of people and then you reopened the economy. And now you say you got record job growth. We of haven't course. even gotten back to the same number of jobs that we had in January, 2020. But like, this isn't even like one of those, like, you know, sleight of hand, you know, you know, trick of the hand type of things. Like that was just like a blatant lie. Oh, it is. And, and the left is all going, oh, we can definitely run on the economy. Oh, this is this is good. These there's good stuff here. Kamala was saying it. There's oh no, a lot I, I to think they should, can here. I can I just We're say right, happy about can this. I just right now for every Democrat that would like to run on this economy, um please do. I'm Nick Freitas and I fully support that message. I think you should do it. I think you absolutely should. Um, and, and what's fascinating about this is they're talking about like, oh, we're, we're outpacing China. Okay, <laughs> let's look at a couple of things before you start getting all giddy about this. One, communist governments don't aren't the most honest with respect to their overall financial numbers and figures. Number two, China has been inflating their currency and, and engaging in this sort of irresponsible monetary policy. There, there is a ton. I mean, we've done, if you never checked out the Y minutes, go to the Y minutes. We've actually done yep. some really interesting, like three minute videos on why China is not the economic powerhouse you're being told it is. And we go into some of the huge government directed malinvestment. We're talking about, cities, like billions of dollars put into cities that almost no one lives in. It's incredible. Like in, in downtown Beijing, they like destroyed an entire city block with this like new apartment complex that they were, that they had just put up. Not, it's not just that, but like we, um, one of my favorite episodes, um, episodes that we ever did with the Y minutes was talking about just how rich China's richest city is. And, yeah. and mm -hmm. China's richest city is Singapore or not Singapore, Shanghai. Shanghai. We did an episode on that as well. Yeah. We did. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. 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 Freudian slip. That was my favorite all time episode, yeah. but, um, China's richest city is, um, Shanghai. And we did a comparison between that and some of the poorest states in the United States. And yeah. the results of that are actually kind of surprising. But but to get back to Biden's point about inflation and apparently, you know, we're growing faster than China. Keep in mind that China also just recently locked down yeah, large again. parts of the country again. It was like the port of Shanghai was closed for like two or three weeks straight. Yeah. Um, so, like, I, I don't understand I mean, actually, I do understand why Democrats are trying to say we're going to run on the economy because, quite frankly, they have nothing else they can run on. Yeah. But like going back to, to Yellen's point, though, about, you know, admitting she was wrong, I I do have to give credit where credit is due for her admitting that there was that, that she called this incorrect because she she totally missed the mark. Yeah. What I cannot forgive her for is the fact that she did miss the mark because, I mean, 
nor- normal people that did base level understanding of economics that understand things like the Austrian business cycle, they saw this coming up. 10 miles away. Yeah. I remember people like Thomas Massey were tweeting. Thomas Massey's congressman um, that got tons of flack in March 2020 for going out there and saying, we shouldn't be passing $2 trillion omnibus bills. This is going to destroy the economy. And he was accused of wanting people to die. Yeah. And he was right, and she was dead wrong. Yeah. Well, and, and that's some of the most irritating articles I've seen over the last year where people coming out going, nobody saw this coming. No, nobody you listened to saw mm-hmm. this coming. Yeah. There was a lot of people that saw it coming, said it was coming. And not just that. I'm not just talking about somebody with a tinfoil hat going, we're all doomed, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people like Thomas Massey that specifically got up there and said, if you do this, it is going to cause this, and this is why. Right? They, they explained it, and they were treated like they were either idiots or they didn't understand economics or they didn't understand monetary policy or, like you said, right, the, the cheapest one, you just want people to die. You want people to lose their homes. It's like, no, there's consequences for printing this much money in such a short period of time, and, and you can't get around them. And, and I don't know if they were thinking that, all right, look, we've shut down the economy. This is a, this is a you know, once-in-a-lifetime event with a global pandemic. And then the government's response in so many ways made it worse, right? In some ways, maybe better, but in a lot of ways made it worse. And then they're going to come in and say, well, okay, we're printing all this money, but once we turn the economy back on, you know, then, then we'll have economic growth because typically what ends up happening in inflating the, again, my opinion, inflating the currency is, is a bad idea, but some people argue that if you have a lower rate of inflation that is keeping up with your overall productivity of your economy, right? Like actual supply and demand is, is increasing at the same time that, you know, you're, you're printing more money and putting it out there. You, you can, you can manage it, right? You can manage the growth in such a way to where your inflation, you don't have hyperinflation. You don't have prices rising all over the place at, at, at astronomical rates. That's not what this was. Mm-hmm. And, and for anybody to look at this and say that you couldn't predict it, is ridiculous, but I think one of the most one of the most pernicious things like this. Every once in a while on a podcast, I'll say, if you take away nothing else, take away this. The same people that are telling you, right, that are telling all of us that the Fed is merely responding to the the marketplace and what's going on and these different things. And the Fed is desperately just trying to make sure that we, you know, we we allow the economy to grow where it needs to and and slow it down in other areas and that we we prevent these booms and busts. The people that are telling you that are either ignorant or lying to you. Why why would they lie about that? So if you're the one controlling, if you're the one controlling inflation, the, the actual number of units of currency within sure. the marketplace, that's incredibly powerful. And one of the things that's so interesting, and the left loves to point this out, the left loves to point out the fact that starting in like the 70s, 80s, right, you started to see this huge departure between what they call real wages and what like the richest 1% were making. They, they keep talking about like the income inequality within the United States and how it was going at a certain rate and then it, it departed. And the reason why is because Reagan passed tax cuts. No, that's not the reason why. No, if you want to look at the, if you want to look at the, the number one factor, completely removing ourselves from the gold standard. And when people hear gold standard, they think, oh, I got to walk around with a bag of gold. But no, that's not how the gold <laughs> standard works. All right. But when we, when we moved away from any sort of restriction, and any sort of like international, uh, like objective criteria for how much money that the Federal Reserve could just you know print basically the Treasury could print. You started to see 
more of this boom and bust cycle within our economy. Mm-hmm. And, and it was this, it was this idea that anytime that there's a, a, a downtrend in the economy, then what the feds responsibility is to come in and, and pump up more money into the economy in order to get it going. Right. And, and then when it starts to get going again, well, then it ramps it down and it, it raises interest rates. And the Austrian theory of the business cycle was the only one looking at this going, wait a second, you're, you're not responding to the boom and bust cycle. You're creating the boom and bust cycle. I want you and Christian to define what the Austrian business cycle theory of the business cycle is. But just to clarify, is is there any inflation whatsoever when the gold standard is in place? Yeah. I mean, you, so if you like, for instance, yes. if you had a massive infusion of gold, like okay. this happened in Spain, so right? The the most prominent example of this is called the price revolution that took place um, during the colonial era in Latin America and South America. When the Spanish colonized uh, the Americas in the, you know, 15, 16 and 1700s, they mined a ton of gold and silver, a lot of silver yeah. from Bolivia, and they imported it back to Spain. And at the time, gold was very rare to be found in Europe. There was only a couple okay. gold mines, usually like in the Alps, the Austrians controlled them. And and so there's sudden massive influx of gold created about 5% inflation, which sounds reasonable by our standards today. <laughs> but back then, inflation wasn't really a thing. You, you could only inflate the currency if you debased it, if you did what the Roman emperors did, you know, a thousand years before the Spanish. But the the problem that the Spanish had was is that they had no idea what the even concept of inflation was. Yeah. And so they imported all this gold in and they were like, great, now we have all this money that we can fight endless wars with the French over Italy. <laughs> and then they kept finding like every 20 years, their country was literally declaring bankruptcy. Wow. And this is what ended up actually, the, the irony is, is that part of the reason the Spanish empire collapsed um, in the, the 1800s, about a century later, was because the Spanish economy found itself in this endless boom-bust cycle that had been fueled by the injection of gold. The thing is, is that it's very hard to inflate gold because you got to mine it, right? Right. But if you're finding, you know, thousands or millions of pounds of gold in the mountains of the Andes or in Mexico, and then you're mining that, and then you're bringing it back to Europe, well, now you've increased the money supply. And that's exactly what happened in Spain. Mm -hmm. Now, what's happening now is you know, a digital version of that. They're not, they're not finding, you know, gold because we're not on a gold standard. They're, they're adding zeros to a number on a computer. That's what the federal reserve is doing when they're increasing their balance sheet. And then they're going out into the market and they're buying, you know, assets with that. And federal reserve is buying assets. That's what, that's what quantitative easing was. And to get back to Nick's point about the, the split between wages and productivity and that started in the seventies and eighties, um, you know, so Democrats, as we just said, or, you know, they love to blame, or the left in general loves to blame the Reagan tax cuts. But there, there were two events that did that. It was the departure from the gold standard that started it. Yeah. And it was the Greenspan put that started in 1987 that was the second of those two. And I, I would actually put equal weight to both of them because the Chicago school would say, oh, well, you could have a Federal Reserve that removes itself from the gold standard. And that's not going to create a big problem as long as you don't engage in massive quantitative easing. And there's a there's a debate to be had between yeah. Austrians. Can and you Chicago. define quantitative easing right quick? So quantitative easing is a complex term to describe something that's actually super simple. It is a term that politicians use to make themselves sound super smart. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I mean this. absolutely accurate. I, so there's a term called Fed speak where the Federal Reserve, the chairman of the Federal Reserve will get before Congress and he will intentionally say the most bland, boring thing that you could think of, but he will use the most complex 
legal jargon in order to make it literally impossible for even the members of Congress to understand what he's saying. And they do that in order to get away with stuff that they otherwise would not get away with. Because when you hear quantitative easing, you sound like, oh, the experts are in charge. They're going to take care of us. Sure. But when you hear money printer go burr, <laughs> you understand what that is, because yeah. that is what quantitative easing is. It is literally a complex term to describe money printer go burr. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, so to answer your point, anytime you have an influx of currency, the reason mm -hmm. why, as Christian stated before, the difference between fiat currency and hard currency, gold being a hard currency, right? right. Like an actual physical, you know, metal with intrinsic value, et cetera. Fiat currency is money because the government says it's money, mm -hmm. right? And, and the part of the whole modern monetary theory and whatnot is this idea that, um, in, in order for something to have value as currency, Right. There, there's a couple of criteria. So there's things like, you know, intrinsic value, portability, divisibility, you know, all, all these other things that will put people to sleep. But what the MMT people say, modern monetary theory people say is like, well, when a government prints money and then puts it out of the economy as a, as a unit of exchange, the one advantage they have is that the government is then going to tax that money. And so the reason why people will use the government printed money Interesting. Is because everyone has to pay taxes, right? And so now it has value as a medium of exchange because you're going to have to pay taxes because the people with guns will force you to do it. So, so here's a here's a mechanism to do that, right? And and that's one of that's one of the arguments that they use for why the government should be you know heavily involved in in um in the in the printing and management of your currency. The the problem that we have, and again going back to Christian's point, the reason why you had this major departure and the reason why inflation has become you know more of a problem is because when you have something like a gold standard, again that does not mean you have to walk around buying stuff with bags of gold. All it means is that now the amount of money you can print is tied to something that is more fixed than a Federal Reserve chairman just deciding we're going to print more money because essentially that's what we have right now. Real quick note on your comment about taxes. I saw an article about two weeks ago or earlier in May reporting that the IRS saw record tax haul on short-term capital gains taxes, a.k.a. meme stocks. And and I, I just think it's funny that, you know, you talk about the IRS and, like, printing more money, you know, creates more income for the IRS. And I think we saw that in stocks and well, crypto. And we, well, that money and, found its way into stocks. Yeah. And, and the other, well, and that's the other reason to explain, like, why do you have this match, massive departure in, in what they call income inequality? And it's like, well, okay, first of all, income inequality always exists, right? There, mm -hmm. There's reasons why it exists. Somebody decides to be a doctor. Somebody over here decides to be a teacher. Those two people are going to have disparities in their income. It's not because the system is evil. It's not because anything bad happened, right? It's just different choices, different preferences. When you create an economic system where the money you earn is constantly being undermined by the government, then if you're in the sort of occupation which relies on the currency maintaining its value, mm -hmm. you are in far more trouble when the government starts to inflate the currency than if you're someone where the vast majority of your money is found in other assets. Like the vast majority of your wealth is not found in, I've got you know so many Federal Reserve dollars in my bank account. It's found in, no, I've got so many units of stock. In, in, you know, various companies or, or whatever it is. And so the, when inflation hits, people that, that don't get the value or don't have their wealth portfolio based off of that, they usually end up being far harder hit than the people that do. Those who live paycheck to paycheck. Yes. The, the people that live paycheck to paycheck are far harder hit. Because it ultimately, inflation is also a tax on savings. Because if your money is sitting in a savings account gaining like 1% interest, but inflation's 8%, 
Well, you're losing a significant amount of your wealth by having your money sit there. Whereas, you know, the investor is going in and they're, they're putting their money into the right stock portfolios and things like that and adjusting it because some stocks, if, if you know how to play the game on the stock market, you can make a ton of money in an inflationary economy, but you got to know when to offload as well. Yeah, that was my problem. But, <laughs> but like to, to, to Nick's point, I don't think it's, it's, I, I think that he's right, but I also think that there's one other aspect when it comes to the whole market thing. When the, when the Federal Reserve is engaging in quantitative easing, again, the money printer go burr, that money doesn't just sit there at the Federal Reserve's own bank account. Yeah. That money finds its way into the economy. And when it through finds its banks, way into right? the economy, usually through banks, what happened uh, in 2020 and at the beginning of 2021 was for the first time basically forever, it wasn't just – so when the Federal Reserve engages in quantitative easing, it doesn't actually get its way into the hands of normal people usually. It gets its way into the hands of massive banks. Mm -hmm. And so the Fed's problem, they had this during the last crisis in 2008 where the Fed printed trillions of dollars. But the reason we didn't have massive inflation in 2009 or 2010 was because that money didn't just immediately find its way into the economy. That money was sitting in a lot of banks. The Fed couldn't get it directly in the hands of people. Well, what did they do in 2020? They gave everybody $1,400 stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. And you know what people did with those $1,400 stimulus checks? They bought GME. That's what they did. GameStop. They bought GameStop. <laughs> they, they they bought Shiba Inu. They bought Dogecoin. And so what you ended up seeing was is that in a normal environment, if you weren't being given free money by the Federal Reserve, would you have bought 16 million Shiba Inus? You didn't even know what Shiba Inu was. <laughs> like you, you're not going to you're not going to put your own good hard earned money that you worked for towards what you think might be a bad investment. Oh, I did. But <laughs> I just like crypto. well, some people do. But but what happens when you just have free money, supposedly free yeah. money flowing into the hands of you? You're gonna be. It's kind of like the tragedy of the commons. You're gonna be less careful with how you're going to invest that that's right. this is this is a core component of the Austrian business cycle where you fuel a a giant bubble with low interest rates and cheap money and what happens is at first at first that money goes towards good investments where people have been waiting to to buy that new piece of equipment for their job or they've been waiting to buy a house that they needed or they've been waiting to invest in that stock that they knew was undervalued and was going to put a good return in but then when you put even more money in and you keep interest rates at zero, eventually good money will, will no longer be chasing after good. Good money will start chasing after bad. Well, there's there's also there's also this phenomenon that takes place when the Federal Reserve does this, right? And this is one of the things that, the again, the Austrian school started to really zero in on because it was this whole boom or bust cycle. And again, the theory was is that a central bank is going to help modify that because you had different runs on banks and things like that. So now you have things that you're going to have a lender of last reserve, right? You're going to have the FDIC, which was going to insure your money up to a certain point that you had in it. And the whole idea was this is that we're creating this framework where people will have faith in banks. Mm -hmm. And so they'll put money in banks and then banks do, you know, a, a significant, obviously a significant amount of the investing that actually takes place in the economy, right? When you go to buy a house, you're probably not paying cash. You're probably going to a bank, getting a mortgage, the whole day that mortgage transfers within the economy. It gets bundled with other assets, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea was, is we're going to create a stabilizing mechanism. So people feel comfortable putting their money in the bank, but we're also going to watch the currency. And we're also going to make sure here's what ended up happening. When the Fed comes in and does something like, for instance, drastically lowers interest rates, this is not just some 
the arbitrary number you're throwing around, right? There are incentives which are created based off of lowering interest rates. And one of the biggest things that happens when you lower interest rates, especially when you, you, you know, arbitrarily lower them or you, you, you make them way lower than they actually should be. Ultimately, people start investing in larger capital projects, right? If interest rates are low, all of a sudden you're interested in buying a car. You might yep. be interested in buying a house. You might be interested in buying property. If you're a company, you might be interested in buying a new uh, factory or, or more capital equipment in order for your factory, whatever it is. Because anything you're going to have to take a loan out for, you want to take the loan out when the interest rates are low. So that when, when, you, when the interest rates become low because the Fed has just lowered them, the signal that it sends to people is this is a good time to invest mm -hmm. in large projects, whether it's capital investment, whether it's a home Whatever, it's a good time to invest in that. Now, typically what happens when you, let's say you didn't have a Federal Reserve, does that mean that nobody would take out loans? No, you still would. But the question is, is why, why would interest rates be lower, okay, in an economy where the Fed wasn't manipulating the interest rates? It would be lower because savings would be higher. So if I'm someone and I'm saving a lot of money in a bank, right? So we've got a bank. The bank's done a pretty good job. I've got a ton of money just sitting in those vaults. Well, I'm not making, as the bank, I'm not making money by having money sitting in my mm -hmm. vaults. I'm making money by investing it. Well, the way that these signals used to work is, well, if I'm, if I'm running a factory or if I'm looking at capital projects or maybe I'm a builder or things like that and people are saving the, the, the signal it sends to the economy is people are not spent. People are saving more than they're spending right now, but they're going to spend in the future. So what are they saving for? Well, they're saving for more um, spending in the future, whether that be on a house, whether that be on whatever it is. So that is a good time to ramp up the money on your capital projects to build that additional capacity in order to provide those goods and services that people are going to want in the future. What happens though, when you, when you're lowering the interest rates, not because people are saving more, you're just lowering the interest because the Fed says so. Well, now people are continuing to spend at the same rate. Savings depletes. Savings depletes. They might actually overextend themselves on things because now they're, they're going after houses or they're going after other projects that they don't have the money for. Not to mention the fact that the signal you sent to the economy, to the people that are producing things in the economy is, oh, interest rates are low. I need to buy all these capital projects. Well, you don't have increased productivity. You don't have increased resources. So now you have more people competing for the same number of resources. Causes prices to go up. Then all of a sudden you have builders going out there and building all of these houses that they're anticipating people are going to be able to buy or afford in the near future, only to find out that, no, they, they weren't in the market for that. Well, now what happens? You have malinvestment. Now I have a bunch of houses built I can't sell. Now I have a factory producing things people don't have money for. Right. If I'm if I'm a, a home buyer that said, oh, I, I, I love this low interest rate, but it turns out I lost my job. Now I can't afford to pay that mortgage on that big house that I bought at a low interest rate. Right. So you, you are sending perverse incentives within the marketplace. And this is one of the things that the Austrian theory of the business cycle articulates is that when you when you treat interest rates like you can just screw with them at the Federal Reserve with no consequences, you are sending perverse signals into the economy, which causes malinvestment. Mm -hmm. It's not just, oh, if only we had gotten the money to the right people, they would have spent. No, you've already messed with the signals. And, and that's a huge problem. And what it does is it caused this big boom, right? Because, oh, we're going we're gonna to build all this stuff. We're going to manufacture all this stuff. We're going to do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, there, there isn't that additional money for it, and you have a tank. So what does the Federal Reserve do? Oh, well, we got to lower interest rates more. We got to print more money. Okay, now you got another boom. 
this is also where you see it happening either um, in, in very specific sectors, like you saw the housing market crisis, or like with the inflation that we're seeing right now, it's across the entire economy, right? Everything is going up sure. because they're devaluing your currency by simply just printing more out without corresponding productivity, right? And wow. I, I know this sounds really complex, but- I think you did a great job of explaining that. I hope so. This I w- is extremely important. It, yeah. It, it, well, it, and the reason why it's so important, the reason why we really want people to understand this is because, yeah, Janet Yellen goes out there and goes, hey, I was wrong about inflation. But then she blames Putin. She blames COVID. She, bl- she blames everything except for the fact that they are printing a bunch of money in order to fuel government spending. They're still, they're still creating perverse incentives with the economy. They're still devaluing your currency. The people that know how to mess with an inflation-stoked economy will, will get out of this just fine, even better than ever. And everybody else is going to get really messed over by this. So the Fed has the option of trans- transferring newly printed dollars or created dollars straight to the federal government. Oh, yeah. That's called debt monetization. Yeah. That That is literally what the federal – so until COVID happened, the Federal Reserve's job has unofficially – they always talk about – at the beginning of our show, we talked about how the Federal Reserve has two jobs in the eyes of the federal government. That's to keep inflation low and full employment, which is yeah. – that's a whole other thing. But point is, is that they actually have a third unspoken job, and that third job for the last 14 years – has been to monetize the Federal Reserve's perpetual budget deficit. Hmm. It's called debt monetization. And that is what the Federal Reserve's real job has been for since 2008. And... The problem that they have now is they can't do it anymore. No, no, no because I, you can only keep debt monetization going when interest rates are effectively at zero. Yeah, right, are, g- give give me an explanation on what debt monetization is. Do you want to do it or do you want me to? I mean, uh, effectively, what it is is that you're you're printing money to pay off your debt. Okay, okay, right. It's pretty so, simple. So yeah, it, it's, it's another one of those big. <laughs> yeah, it, it's words. one. It's another one of those things that that you know that. Government trained economists put out there in order to make it sound like, oh, this is oh, debt monetization. Yes, that sounds very sophisticated. No, I'm I'm essentially printing money to pay off government debt. Now, if you were to do that as an individual, you would go to jail oh, yeah. <laughs> for fraud and for counterfeiting. counterfeiting, right? But when the federal government does it, oh, it's well, wait, it's called debt monetization. So it's here's totally the again, it's like you you've got a bunch of people who pay no price for being wrong. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, especially because the chairman of the Federal Reserve, I mean, just got reelected by the US Senate. So so the chairman yeah. of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, is appointed by um the president, but it has to be confirmed by um the Senate because it's 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 one of those those appointed positions that require Senate confirmation. Well, the Senate voted like over 80 votes, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Both parties. Yeah. You, you only had a handful of people like Rand Paul that were voting no on it. Yeah. But like Gotta love him. The, the 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 definition of debt monetization is the practice of government borrowing money from the central bank to finance public spending instead of selling bonds to private investors or raising taxes. The central banks who buy government debt are essentially creating new money in the process to do so. So the way that you do it is the the, the Federal Reserve prints money. They create money, usually digitally. Yeah, sure. And then they buy government bonds to do it, uh, you know, w- with that money. So now that means that the federal government has a bunch of money, right? Because they technically sold a bond, but they didn't sell a bond to me. They sold the bond to Jerome Powell. Mm-hmm. And where did Jerome Powell get the money? to buy the bond. Well, he just created it. He just created it. So that's what debt monetization is. But the thing is, you can only pull that off because it's a bond, right? Which means the federal government has to pay it back. Well, if the federal government is paying zero interest, it's free money. It's an an endless supply of free money. So what happens when the interest is no longer 0%? 
like it's now. It's and it's going up and up and up. So what's going to happen next? This is a prediction for the future for the, oh, for, for those of you at home. Everybody listen. If the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates, we don't know if they will. Part of me thinks they might not because the whole the whole system might blow up if they keep doing so. But if they continue to raise interest rates, the federal government's deficit and the national debt that's associated with it is going to go through the roof yeah. and we can end up with potentially an American federal debt crisis as a result because the federal government has been borrowing literally trillions of dollars from the Federal Reserve through debt monetization for 14 years and they have paying they've been paying almost 0% interest on it. What's going to happen when they start paying 5% interest or 7% interest? Think, think about how much of the budget now is consumed by debt with just paying off that debt. Hmm. Right? And and then again because th there's there's three ways that the government can raise money in order to pay for its spending or pay for its debt or whatever it is. They can tax it, they can borrow it, or they can print, print it. it, right? The problem is they've done all three so much at this point. And here's the funny part, because one of the go-to countries for the United States in order to borrow, in order to pay for our debt China? was China. Well, if China's economy isn't doing so hot anymore and they've got their own problems, how much of our debt are they buying? None. Right, so now you have a problem where you you don't have you don't have enough wealth in the foreign uh, markets to buy our debt. You you can't if you tax the American people anymore at this point, you're going to get a revolt, right? So you got to print it. But the problem is you've already printed so much that it, the inflation is is killing the economy. Mm -hmm. So you wind up in the situation now where what does the government do? Well, you've got to tighten your belt. Well, good luck running on that, right? And that's where we're at right now. And, and that's the yeah. part because when you look at the unfunded liabilities, this is this is the part where, you know, we we all understand the liabilities is I've, I've taken out you know debt on something like that and now I've got to pay it off. That's a liability. The unfunded liabilities when we start to look at the long term projections of things like Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, like all of these social safety net programs. That if you look at population growth versus the amount of people that are working within the economy versus what it's actually going to cost to fund these things, the money's not there. And they always want to act like, well, this is not a big deal because the Federal Reserve can print more. This is not a big deal because we can always borrow more. This is not a big deal because we can tax more. What what happens if you can't do it? What happens when you can't do it and you've gotten people basically addicted to these government programs, which are no longer solvent? Sounds like we're all screwed. We Okay, here's the, here's the good news. <laughs> right? Here's the good okay, news. Okay, I'm glad there's good news. I'm glad you're about to give it because I was literally about to answer uh, Hamilton and been like, yeah, we're screwed. We're like, no, <laughs> That's all this question's answer. We're doomed. Here, here's, what's, here's what's interesting. If people, like, why do we spend so much time on this? If people properly understood what happened, we can actually make the sort of functional changes that are necessary in order to prevent it in the future. Um, because the, the United States, like a free market economy actually has an incredible capacity for rebound. And, and you can look no further. In fact, it was the last time I think in American history we ever did this, but we had a huge economic downturn in the early 1920s, late 19 teens, early twenties, right? It was right after, right around you know, the end of world war one, um, Warren G Harding, or excuse me. We um, had a pandemic too at the time. Yeah, we did. Spanish flu. Uh, or was it? it was Spanish flu. Yeah. yeah. So Woodrow Wilson, uh, has a stroke. And his wife is essentially 
running the country at this point, which is to say that they weren't really doing anything, right? There wasn't a lot of executive action because Woodrow Wilson was a huge progressive, bought into this, you know, all these like modern theories of um, managing the economy through government, et cetera. But he wasn't, he didn't have the capacity to do so. Warren G. Harding gets elected with Calvin Coolidge as his vice president. They run on a policy of we're returning to normalcy, we're getting out of all this war spending, because Woodrow Wilson was all about, well, we can't just disband the whole army and stop controlling the economy through the government like we did during wartime. We've got to continue to do this. Right. And they even talked about that we planned in war. Why can't we plan in peace? And there was a really popular move within the progressive element of the United States to have the government play a far bigger role in managing the economy. Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge come in and do the exact opposite of what every expert today says you have to do in an economic downturn. They cut government spending. They cut taxes. They actually said, we're going to practice bold deflation, right? You were to say that now and every economy, every mainstream economy, everybody would come in like, oh my gosh, you're going to destroy everything. That's what they did. Within two years, we had a huge economic recovery. Wow. That's Huge what led to the recovery. Roaring 20s. Yeah. That, that, that's what led to the good part. There were two yeah. sides of the Roaring 20s. There yeah. was the actual good, strong economic growth, yeah. the, the actual legitimate boom. And then by the late 20s, you started the, the Federal Reserve, in my opinion. Which was relatively laid, new at this Yes, point. laid the groundwork for what would become the stock market crash in 1929 through an injection of, of money and cheap credit into the market that fueled this speculation. But the, and this is another discussion for another day. We actually did a why minute on this yeah, too, we did. but like, you know, the, the depression was not actually caused by the crash. There no. were other market crashes before the depression was caused by the government response to it because Coolidge was no longer in office by that yeah. point. It was Hoover a bunch was. of give big government guys like Hoover and eventually FDR. But to Nick's point, the actual legitimate boom of the 1920s, the early twenties that led into the Coolidge presidency was caused by the policies that Coolidge and his president, well, eventually Coolidge took over yeah. when Harding died, but but it was caused by those policies where they were doing the exact opposite of what all the progressives were saying they needed to do. They were doing the exact opposite of what the MMT people, the modern monetary people or the Keynesians today would be saying that they need to do. And if there's nothing else that you get from this whole entire discussion, when it comes to our lives a hundred years later, you know, with the price of gas now, I mean, I, I just saw an article a few days ago that the price of gas is getting very, very close to $5 a gallon nationally. Yeah. And Diesel's it's over five. It is. Yeah. I mean, and, and you get into some bluer states like California. I mean, it's and like it's eight like bucks. eight and in and, and parts of LA, apparently it's getting close to 10. Yeah. And so, so you look at that, you look at, at, you know, the, the price of food is about to go through the roof and that's a whole nother discussion maybe for another day. But point is, is that like people are really hurting and the way that we can fix this in my point of view is, is that we have got to elect people to Congress that have the mindset that people like Rand Paul and Thomas Massey had in 2020, where they took all the arrows and they were accused of wanting yep. people to die. They were accused of wanting to crash the economy and they were absolutely right. And people like Janet Yellen and Nancy Pelosi, and quite frankly, some Republicans too, oh, yeah. were dead wrong. Most of the Republicans. And if if, if, if you see, if, if you're voting in a Republican primary, because let's be honest, if you're watching the show, you're probably engaged enough in politics that you're a primary voter. And most people aren't. If you're voting in a Republican primary for Congress or for U.S. Senate this year, and your candidates that are running for office are not talking about the Federal Reserve, and they're only talking about Biden, 
because Biden's at fault for this, but the, the, to, to a large degree, but the vehicle through which this is happening is the Federal Reserve. And if we're not electing people to Congress that are campaigning and promising to rein in the Federal Reserve's power, to rein in the ability of the Federal Reserve to print $5 trillion and inject it into the economy, we will never fix this problem because 10 years down the road, the Federal Reserve will, you know, uh, we'll we'll start the whole cycle all over again. Yeah, and if you don't, and if you don't think they would do that, if you think no, 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 they learned the lesson. Ten years ago, Zimbabwe engaged in hyperinflation, and their inflation rate was 89, 88, It was about eighty six sextillion, sextillion percent. Eighty nine sextillion percent in in Zimbabwe. This is like ten years ago. They finally they got the inflation out of their economy. They hooked it to the United States dollar, <laughs> which at that point was a good idea, right? And and they they got the inflation out. They started to have like you know businesses started to come back. You started to have more investment and things like that. All of a sudden, there was an economic downturn. What did the president of Zimbabwe did? Started printing more money. More money. Then there was COVID. What they do again? Started printing more money. We just we just did a Y minute on how came out yesterday. Yeah, the the stock market in Zimbabwe has outperformed every other stock market in the world. It's doing 129 times better than the Nasdaq right now. Is that because there's all kinds of booming economic investment and productivity in Zimbabwe? No. Nope. Printing money, and because there is this, there will always be this desire. Nobody wants to be the president in charge when it comes time to say we can't do this anymore we we ha we have to raise interest rates we cannot allow the dollar to just keep being printed in order to fuel more government spending and we have to cut government spending and we have to cut government spending like we we have to cut it there there is no alternative mm -hmm. and and if you do it you can get you can you can bounce back relatively quick and have you can start to have um good strong sound productivity and growth within the economy but there will always be somebody out there trying to basically sell you the cotton candy version of this, right? High sugar, no calories, no nutritional value, mm -hmm. right? But it looks really good and it seems really fun. And oh my gosh, aren't I benefiting from when someone hands me a $1,400 check? No, they gave you that right now to get your vote right now. Yeah. But when, it, when it's hurting you, when it's hurting your children, when it's hurting everybody else, they will be happy to point toward a greedy corporation. Oh, they'll yeah. be happy to point toward somebody mm -hmm. else. Or Putin, right? When in when in reality, this was predictable. It was predicted. And what everyone needs to learn is stop listening to the same people that benefit financially mm -hmm. or from a, just a, an, an accumulation of power, benefit from running this system the way they're currently running it, right? Start listening to the people that said you, that were willing to stand up and take the slings and arrows from yeah. everybody and say, you can't do this. Right, those are the people. The the next, those are the people that we should be listening to going forward. Not people like Joe Biden. Say, oh, well, the key here is we're going to build back better, and we're just going to make it a green economy, and we're going to. And it's Putin's price hike. And it's Putin's price hike. This like, just goes to show that Thomas Sowell was right yet again. Yeah, that always. When the people want the impossible, only, only liars, liars can satisfy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Only liars can satisfy. So, real quick before we wrap up here, we got a couple more minutes. Nick, I want you to explain to us what the Austrian theory of business cycle is. Okay. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. And Christian, I want you to explain to us what the Chicago school is. <laughs> Are we going to debate right no, now? No, 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 no. Just a, just this a, is going to turn into a rap battle. Just, I, I, can I, feel don't think it. That's, I don't think it's really fair because it's not a Chicago it, theory of yeah, the business there, there's cycle. There's not necessarily, well, okay. To, I'll go first because I can sum this up very quickly, okay. and I want Nick to end on— I want our folks to walk out of here understanding okay. a bit more about so, these theories. This is maybe a discussion for another time in, in more detail, but long story short, 
I think Nick is is very and by the way, I'm very sympathetic with the Austrian school. Very, very sympathetic mm-hmm. with the Austrian school. I probably identify more with the Chicago school than the Austrian school. And I think that they both have very strong strengths. And Nick is about to get to the Austrian business cycle, which I very much believe in. Mm-hmm. But long story short, the Chicago school will say that you can have a central bank as long as you don't have the money printing. If you actually mm-hmm. have a central bank that does what the Fed said that you're supposed to have. I don't think the Fed is doing that, and I think that we should audit it, and if we can't fix this problem, then I do think we should abolish it. But I don't think the problem is necessarily with us pulling off from the gold standard. I think the problem was is that we printed a bunch of money and we kept interest rates at zero, and we fueled this business cycle that Nick is going to explain in a second. So the the, the Austrian school will say that, you know, when when there's any sort of, you know— bank or we we pull ourselves off the gold standard, you're going to create the conditions for this to happen, which very well might be true. The Chicago school would say, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that, but I certainly agree that the conclusions of those actions is a bad thing, but I don't think that it's guaranteed that that will set the the stage for that okay. to happen. So that that's it's a slight disagreement, but overall, Chicago and Austrian school are very equally critical of Keynesianism and MMT, which are the two prominent economic models on the left that quite frankly have created this whole mess. So another way, another way to think of it is Chicago school, Milton Friedman, Austrian school, Frederick Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, right? So if you're, if you're looking for people to kind of like associate with, and and again, I think all three of those people that I just mentioned are are brilliant economists, uh, a a lot to bring to the table. Austrian theory of the business cycle. I'm going to try to sum this up as easy as possible. And I'm sure there's going to be some people out here that probably listen to like Bob Murphy or or Tom Woods and be like, that's not a good, okay, here's the best way I can explain it. The Austrian theory of the business cycle goes back to what I said before, right? The the powers that be are currently telling you that the Fed is responding to natural cyclical, you know, cycles within the economy that just happens as a result of like malinvestment, bad investments and things like that. The Austrian theory comes in and says, well, no, something is different is happening. That yes, obviously within a free market, you're going to have times when people make bad investments, right? You might even have times where, uh, you know, major companies make bad investments and go out of business or, or things like that. And then there's, you know, shock waves to the economy as a result. Nobody's denying that because people are fallible. They make mistakes. Sure. They're saying that when you start to see these huge boom and bust cycles across like an entire industry, or when you see it even worse across like the entire economy, that is generally a direct result, not of, everybody within the marketplace just simultaneously making bad decisions, Mm -hmm. but the government actually intervening into the economy in such a way that creates perverse incentives. Mm -hmm. So what I was talking about before, like for instance, here's a good example. When the federal reserve lowers interest rates, right? right? Savings interest rates should go down when savings are up, banks got more money to loan, right? And then, and it's sending the proper signal to the economy that, People are saving now as opposed to spending more, but they're going to spend more in the future. So now's a great time to buy those capital projects and everything else. If the Fed comes in and says, well, it's not that people are saving more. We're just going to lower interest rates because we want to we want to get the economy rolling. Well, now you've sent out a perverse incentive. So you have builders and people investing in capital projects. Well, what does that require? Lumber, concrete, paint, resources. Well, at the same time, you have people that are still competing for those resources in the marketplace. They also want to buy these, these products. Sure. So you're driving the price up, right? Because now you've, what you've done is you've created artificial demand. Mm-hmm. All right. For the same number of resources. And one side is thinking, Oh, this is going to, this is going to 
help me in the future because I need all these capital projects. The other side is thinking, oh my gosh, why is it so expensive to build a deck now? Mm -hmm. Right. And then what happens is that the more major projects that you end up building, right, the more expensive those projects become. And then at some point you have, it crashes because there isn't the demand for the things that you thought there would be demand for because it was not fueled by honest savings within the wow. marketplace. It was fueled by the federal reserve arbitrarily, right? Lower, I shouldn't say arbitrarily, but artificially lowering interest rates. It's kind of arbitrary at and, this point. And so what, what the, what the Austrian theory says is, so they do this, right? They lower it and they cause a boom, yep. right? Everyone thinks, oh my gosh, my, you know, housing prices are through the roof and this is a great time to invest in X, Y, and Z. And, and then what happens? Well, it, it was artificial. So you have a bust. Well, now it starts going down. Well, what's the Federal Reserve's response to that? Well, we, we need more government spending. We need to keep interest rates low so that we don't, you know, hurt what's left of, of this economy, right? Or, or if it goes up, they start to raise interest rates and now that actually reduces overall investment. So what the Austrian theory of the business cycle is essentially saying is that the Federal Reserve and government intervention into the economy is fueling the boom and bust cycles in ways that would never naturally exist. Or, or let's just say this way, would, would probably never or incredibly rarely ever exist if this was just left to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Because the marketplace, when people are dealing in voluntary transactions, yes, sometimes they will make mistakes. Sometimes they'll invest in a business that goes bust. But people are very careful with how they spend their money. Right? They're very careful, even if they're spending someone else's money because you invested with it, they're very careful because they have a fiduciary duty. Right? When it's the government spending the money or when it's the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates, that's not the Fed's, that's not Jerome Powell's money, yeah. that's not the politician's money. They don't use the same you know, careful analysis. And even if they did, here's the other thing that the Austrian school really focuses on. They couldn't possibly do all the planning accurately. They couldn't possibly do all the planning accurately for millions of people conducting millions of daily transactions based off of their own individual interests, which will change from day to day, week to week, based off of what they need or desire within their lives. And so the, the more decentralization we have of that process, right? Usually the better results doesn't mean yeah. you get perfect results because people aren't perfect. But when the federal reserve screws up, when the government screws up, it screws up big. And that is what the Austrian theory of the business cycle would suggest is the primary cause of boom and bust cycles within wow. the economy. It makes a lot of sense. That was a good explanation. I, I feel like you just made the argument there for I think we did. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll finish up with this real, real quick. Yeah. It's just kind of a sum up. Again, the reason why we wanted to go into this today with some degree of depth is because part of what we do here is we, we don't want to just be another person giving you clickbait. Like, oh, inflation's high and Biden's an idiot, right? That's, that's not what we want to do. We want our audience to truly understand what is going on so that you feel comfortable in the knowledge that you possess and explain it in a way that you feel comfortable in your ability to explain it to other people that might be honestly curious about what is going on and how they can vote better, how they can interact better with their representatives, how they can plan better for their own financial futures, all of that stuff. And so that's the reason why we go so in depth on some of this substance. It's the reason why we give you the resources that we do so that you can research it for yourself and learn more. But ultimately, one of the most important things that we have to learn about what is coming up, because we are going to have an economic downturn. Right. The, the, this has been stored up as a result of policies over multiple administrations, and we are going to have an economic downturn, and it is going to be significant. If we properly diagnose why it happened, we can recover faster, 
we can predict what would happen in the future. We can reform our institutions and the way that we think about these things in such a way that will prevent it from happening in the future and allow for genuine high-level productivity and economic, sustainable economic growth. If we learn the wrong lesson, and believe me, there will be a lot of people in politics that are desperate that we learn the wrong lesson from this, then the prescription you're going to get for everything just happened is more of the same. They're going to blame all of their actions on somebody else, and they're going to convince you that what is actually needed is for them to have more power over your life, over the economy, over the way you run your business, over the way you educate your children, over the way you get your health care. Because through an economic crisis like this, what it generally produces is fear and uncertainty. And if the government is the one running in saying, we'll protect you, you will be shocked at how many of your neighbors will hand over essential civil liberties, their ability to make their own choices, economically or otherwise, for just the promise of more security and stability. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not going to come through that. It is going to come by learning the right lessons, making the right diagnosis, making the right changes in the future, and never again letting them have this much control over one of the most essential aspects of our economy, which is our currency. I think that was great. Peace yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. Um, no, well, listen, I, I know we've, we've got a little bit extra here. This has been kind of a, you know, kind of well, a, a heavy. I'd, I'd really like everybody's feedback because we did go really deep into yeah. these subjects, into the Austrian school of thought, uh, into inflation and the Fed and how the federal government's relationship with the Fed, you know, is intertwined and they work together on a lot of these things. Um, you know, this was not really surface level. I, yeah. I'd say it did go a bit deeper and I, I'd appreciate everybody's feedback if you let us know if that was valuable to you. And, you know, I'd also love to hear what kind of your talking points are going to be in conversations about inflation with your family or friends or folks at work um, and maybe how you're better equipped now, if so, to go and have these conversations with people. Well, once again, thank you for joining us. Some other resources here, we can put these in there, but like Tom Woods actually does a really good job of explaining the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Uh, Bob Murphy, very good uh, economist. Also, if you want to read more on just the Austrian theory in general, Frederick Hayek, um, you know, The Fatal Conceit is one of the better books. He's really known for The Road to Serfdom, but The Fatal Conceit is, is a great book to read. Um, Ludwig von Mises' Human Action, that is a big one. I mean, that's a tome. I think we're all waiting for the movie to come out, but um, it, it, it is a very good book. But again, Bob Murphy is one of these guys that can explain a lot of the complex uh, reasons or the things that you hear in these books. Also, uh, Learn Liberty has been a really good website to talk about some of these concepts as well. So go research some more. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.